As you're taking your seat, go ahead and grab your Bible and open up to uh, Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. Uh, the Limburg. That's what we called her. A light blue 1994 Dodge Caravan. Not quite as nice as the purple Geo Metro, but another vehicle, in fact, the first vehicle that was gifted to us when we moved to California. We were broke, as I've mentioned before. We didn't even have a ride, and we named this vehicle after a very kind and generous man who lived in our apartment complex named John Limburg. We named it in honor of him, and we drove it in honor of him. It wasn't much, but it got us where we needed to go for a while. It started off small, a little noise, a little click as we drove. The vehicle was older, that's for sure, and it was falling apart in plenty of other ways, so I didn't think much of it. I did, instead, what every responsible man does. I decided in my supreme wisdom and automotive expertise to pay no attention to it. Over time, I actually started to get used to the noise. It kind of grew on me, and even as it worsened, it became somewhat soothing as I drove around. It would be strange if I didn't hear it. Sure, the vehicle was beginning to feel a little bit more sluggish, not quite as responsive as it used to be, but it really didn't seem like that big of a deal. I mean, I knew something was wrong, honestly, I did. I, I knew something wasn't right, but ultimately I thought it would be fine. You know, it can't be that big of a deal. It's probably going to self-correct. Just give it time. This is just what old cars do, right? They make funny, strange noises until one beautiful sunny day, smoke began coming out from underneath the hood. It was the beginning of the end. Eventually, the engine would seize and the Limburg would rest in peace. You see, the vehicle had been leaking oil, and eventually, it had run out entirely and this is a tip that's for free for you this morning. Your engine needs oil for it to work. <laughs> and unbeknownst to me, I'd been driving around for a good amount of time without any oil in the engine, incurring increasing damage as I continued to drive with no oil, eventually causing permanent damage. Here's the crazy thing, as old as the vehicle was, if I had just dealt with the problem when I first heard those noises, if I had first just paid attention to the warning signs, everything would have been fine. The vehicle would have survived plenty more years. But in my stubbornness and in my pride, and in one sense in my ignorance, I refused to listen to those warning signs. I convinced myself that nothing was really wrong. I didn't want to believe that there was anything truly wrong. I foolishly believed it wasn't a big deal. It's amazing how one small problem, if left unchecked, can cause such great damage. Listen, such is the effect of sin in our lives and in the church of Jesus Christ. If we refuse to pay attention to the warning signs of sin, we will suffer great damage from the ongoing presence of sin. We are called, as the church of Jesus Christ, to be a pure people. So our king, King Jesus, the king of the church, he calls us to take sin seriously, to deal with it strategically, and to thereby represent him faithfully. We've been studying this series on the church. We've been diving deep into what it means to be the church, what the Bible says about the importance of the church. And here this morning, we deal with what Jesus calls us to be. We saw last week we're called to be a people who are distinct, set apart, holy. But to be a holy people, it requires a devotion to God. And on the flip side of that, it requires a purging of sin, fleeing sin, dealing with sin. And in Matthew chapter 18, that's exactly what Jesus instructs the church to do. He calls the church to be a pure people, and he gives the church the pathway to be dealing with sin in the gathering of God's people. Matthew chapter 18, let's read verses 15 through 20 together. These are the words of Jesus as he speaks to his disciples. He says this, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother, but if he does not listen, 
Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of, two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This is Jesus' call for his church, his body, his people to be a pure people. He gives us a very intentional, strategic way to deal with sin that is exposed in the life of the church, the gathering of the people of God. And this morning, we need to be reminded that God is calling us to be just that, a pure people. He wants us to be a people who are pursuing a greater devotion to him, greater likeness to him, but that requires us to be dealing with sin, be purging sin from our lives. First, notice this, that a pure people understand the seriousness of sin. It's interesting, this verse, this section was given to the Jewish people, and in that context, the the Jewish people, if you read through the Old Testament law, one of the things you understood with the giving of the law was not only that God wanted his people to follow the law so that they looked different from all the other nations, he wanted them to be a separate and distinct people, he wanted them to be clearly marked off from all the nations of the world because he was marking himself off from all the other gods of the world. But one of the things that we see as we read through the law was not only that he wanted to make his people distinct, he wanted to impress into the hearts and life of the community of his people the seriousness of sin. If you read through the law, it's so apparent. He lists off all of these sins, all of these offenses, all of the ways in which we can rebel against him, and alongside that come consequences of being rebellious or unclean. Some of the consequences are radically serious. And in fact, every faithful Jew, again, the context of those being written to right here, would have been been reminded of the seriousness of sin throughout the history of their life, the way that God punished them for their sin and rebellion against him. The, The countless stories and examples of how God punished individuals in the life of the community. God hated sin because he himself is holy. He is opposed to sin because it's in his very nature to be opposed to sin. And so his people were always called to become separate from sin and to purge it. But to do that, it requires sin to be taken seriously amongst God's people. Now I say all of that simply to say that I think the context is important. Jesus here didn't have to elevate in one sense the seriousness of sin to those people because they already understood it from their background. You see, our problem in the life of the church is that we don't have the same background or we're very unfamiliar with the way God has judged sin in the past, and so we don't see sin as seriously as they might have. And so instead of beginning to work through this process, which that's what Jesus gives us, a process whereby we are to confront sin in the life of the church, we're to address sin in the life of each other for the purpose, listen, of restoration in the church family, I want to, instead of starting the beginning of this process, I want to move actually towards the end of it so I can elevate the seriousness of sin so we see why it's so important to deal with sin the way Jesus says we're supposed to deal with it. So look with me at verses 18 through 20 again. In fact, right back to the very end of verse 17. You'll notice that this process takes place as sin is being addressed, uh, as it's not being uh, heeded, the exhortation to deal with sin. And the final stage of this church discipline process, as it's been called, is to let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. At the end of this process, the church has been attempting again to confront sin in someone's life, and this person is refusing to listen. They want to continue to walk in their sin. The process ends with the unrepentant sinner that's important to understand here, that unrepentant sinner being treated like a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, again, context is incredibly important. For us to to think about a Gentile and a tax collector in a non-Jewish culture makes very little sense. But in their context, it was understood as to treat this person quite radically. You see, a Gentile 
was a way of saying a non-Jew who held to some form of pagan idolatry. They were a person who was not committed to the same God as the Jews. They were a person who had embraced idolatry and worshiped and bowed down to idols made with human hands. They were a person who was found to be resisting and rebelling against the true and living God. Now, the temple of the Jews had an outer courtyard. Before you were even allowed to enter the temple, there was an outer courtyard. It was called the Court of the Gentiles. This was a place that Gentiles could enter into. This is Gentiles who are actually concerned about pursuing God, not just Gentiles who are idolatrous in nature, but even the Gentiles who wanted to pursue the God of Israel, they were only allowed so far in terms of their approach to God. They weren't allowed into the temple itself. They were forbidden in the Old Testament context. So you see that the Jews here in this context would have understood that to treat somebody like a Gentile was to say that they're not allowed in to the gathered assembly of God's people. A tax collector was even more despised. They were viewed as a traitor not simply by birth, but by choice. They were a Jew, so to speak, who had aligned themselves with the Roman government. The Roman government who had pushed the people of God out of control. The people of God were bowing down or or servants to the Roman government, and they hated it. Instead, a tax collector, a Jewish Jewish person more than likely, had aligned themselves with the government instead of with God's people. They extorted God's people. They stole money from God's people. They abused God's people. And they were greatly despised by the Jewish people. Think Zacchaeus, a Jew who was a tax collector and who had no friends. He was ostracized from the community of God's people because of the path that he had chosen. This language is intended to elevate the seriousness of the sinning, unrepentant follower of Jesus Christ. And the meaning here seems to be very clear. You are to put them out of fellowship. You may have heard the term excommunication. That's the idea here. It is to say to somebody, because of the path you've chosen, you're not allowed in here anymore. You're outside the boundary, and you've placed yourself there. The idea here, according to God's word, is to remove the community of God's people and to remove the care that's found in that community. It is a consequence. It is a consequence given by God, given by Jesus Christ himself, to heighten, listen, to heighten that person's understanding of sin and to heighten the body of Christ's understanding of sin together. Again, let me just emphasize this, that this is God's design in bringing restoration to this individual and to all who pursue a path of sin. It is also God's designed means of removing what the scriptures call the goats from the sheep, of identifying people who are not really followers of Jesus Christ, even though they may say they are. Their actions and their behavior, the fruit of their lives, end up revealing who they truly are and what they truly love. And in many cases, you need to hear this, this is the means by which God uses to bring many people to salvation in Jesus Christ. The consequences for sin are not fully punitive, but they are restorative. They have the supreme objective in bringing that person to the knowledge of their sin and the offense it is against their God and humbling and breaking them so that they can be saved and restored. And I know what some of you are thinking, this sounds really harsh. And and in one sense, I can understand that, but here's why you may believe that it's harsh. Here's why you may be thinking that it's harsh, and, and I mean this with all due respect. It's because you do not really understand the seriousness of sin. The only way we can get to the place where we view God's commands in dealing with sin as being harsh is to misunderstand the seriousness of sin from God's perspective. And so just listen, as a quick sampling of some scriptures from the New Testament, I just wanna highlight for you how seriously God takes sin so that it's elevated in our hearts and minds so that we are compelled to deal with sin and to be the pure people that God's calling us to be. I wanna just remind you really quickly of Acts chapter five, a pivotal passage in the New Testament and and the growth of the church and, and the inception of the church. Here this church is brand new. They're young, they're babies, 
babies in Christ, so to speak, and here God wants to make it clear that the church is supposed to be pure. Ananias and Sapphira, they sell a piece of their land, and they bring the proceeds of that land, pretending to bring the whole thing. They walk up to the front, to the uh, apostles, and they lay down the financial gift at their feet. If you know the story, you know this, that they were withholding back some of the proceeds. That wasn't the issue. The issue is that they were pretending. They were being hypocritical. They were pretending to give it all. They wanted to promote their own reputation. They wanted to be praised. They wanted their glory on display. And God will not compete for glory in his church. The apostles call Ananias out, and he lies not just to men, but to the Spirit of God, and listen to what they say to him. Listen, they said that this very day you will be struck down dead. Listen to this in Acts 5, verse 5. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Listen to what happened. I want you to see this. And great fear came upon all who heard it. God made it very clear at the very beginning of the church that he is serious about sin. He is not playing around with sin. He does not mess around with sin. Hidden sin, willful sin, all of this in particular is a grievous offense towards God. He is not messing around when it comes to sin. He made this clear in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 specifically. There, there is a situation that arises. Again, the, the Corinthian church is messed up. Listen, they're by far a perfect church. And Paul is trying to work with them. He's trying to correct them all the time throughout this entire book. And something incredible is happening in the life of that church. There is a man who is sleeping with his father's wife. Just take that in for a second. Now, it's more than likely it's his mother-in-law, but does that matter? It's so serious that Paul rebukes them and he rebukes the church and says, listen, not even the pagan Gentiles would allow such behavior. And here you are allowing this man in the church to do this and to remain in fellowship in the life of the church. It's so gross, it's so twisted, it's so sick. The sin is so serious. Listen to what it says in Acts, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 2. It says, and you are arrogant. This is what he says to the people who are allowing this to happen. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. He's not playing around. Look at what he says next in verses four and five. He says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, this is the church, and my spirit is present, this is what elevates the seriousness of it, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Are you getting how serious sin is? Can you just catch this here? Put them out and notice here what's happening. Deliver him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. You say, what in the world is he talking about? The flesh is always symbolic of the sinful nature of man. And here's what he's saying. Listen, th this, this man wants his sin that badly. Let him pursue the path of sin. Let him see how far that sin will take him. Let him be ruined by his sin. We say it like this, right? Let him hit rock what? Bottom. Listen, this is the prodigal son. Let him go. He's not allowed in here anymore. Let him go, let him see. Let him see how foolish the pursuit of his sin is. Let him take it all the way to its extreme and hopefully, listen, here's the goal, just here, there's grace in this. The goal is this, that the destruction of his flesh, his sinful nature gets to the end of its rope, it's exposed, and the man is so broken and convicted that what happens, look, look, that he might be saved be saved. You see the idea here? How many of us, listen, have been rebuked in sin, who have been told to stop pursuing sin, and have had to follow the path of sin to come to that conclusion? We've had to hit rock bottom ourselves. It's sad that sometimes it has to come to that, but it is sometimes necessary, and that's what he's saying needs to happen sometimes, even in the life of the church, because sin is that serious to God. I want you to notice one more scripture reference, a Revelation 2, verse 20 through 23. Now, let me just set up with context. This is John, the Apostle John, writing the book of Revelation to the churches, the seven churches. And one of the churches here he writes to is in Thyatira, and he speaks to them, and you'll, if you know what, kind of what's going on in this section, he's commending some churches, he's addressing problems in some churches, but I want you to see how he addresses the problems in this church. He says, but I have this against you, that you, listen to this, tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. 
Behold, listen to the consequences, I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Can you, can you just recognize this morning and understand that God is serious about sin? He is serious about sin. This, in one sense, doesn't it sound a lot like Paul's exhortation to the church in 1 Corinthians 11 in taking the Lord's table? If you take it in an unworthy manner, if you trample on the cross, if you trample on the blood of Christ, listen, you do so. You, you reap, you eat and drink judgment upon yourself. And this is what Paul says. That's why some of you are sick and even dying. I think many of us believe, well, that was probably true back then, but it's probably not true now. Really? Are you sure about that? Let me ask you this. Is that something you're willing to test? (laughs) And yet how many people are testing God in this way in their lives? God is serious about sin. He's casting them out and he's giving them over to their sin and their shame. That's the idea here of treating them like a Gentile and a tax collector because that individual is declaring that they are not willing, listen, to adhere to the standards of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We referenced this passage a couple weeks ago when we looked at Matthew 16, when we talked about the idea of binding and loosing. And you'll notice that language, it's used here, the idea of binding and loosing. And as we looked at it a couple weeks ago, I'll just kind of paraphrase it again. The idea here is that the church has the responsibility to regulate the conduct of those who call themselves followers of Christ. They regulate it not based on their own authority, but the delegated authority given to them by Christ. They regulate it not based on their own preferences or their own wishes or their own wants, but on the word of God. The word of God is held up to every one of us, and it ought to be in the church of Jesus Christ so that we can be a pure people. And the discipline here that is enacted is intended to awaken us, the people of God, and the person being disciplined to the seriousness of sin. And I need to say it like this, listen, this is never to be done with a self-righteous attitude. It is always to be done in an attitude of humility and love that is always desiring restoration. And some people will look at this and say, well, what gives you the right Right? What gives you, the church, the right to do something like this, to address sin in my life, to put me through a process like this? Who made you the authority? Isn't this unloving? Jesus deals with this question of authority in verses 18 through 20. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. This can be clearly understood in the context as dealing with church discipline. And ultimately, what Jesus is saying here is this. If you are going through this process and you're having to get to this extreme place of putting somebody out of fellowship, I want you to know that what you're doing, I agree with as well. If it is aligned with my word, if you've done what I've asked you to do, I am in full and complete agreement with you. You need to see this. Listen, Jesus has not only given the commands of how to deal with it, he agrees when it's done rightly and biblically, and he's actually intimately involved in the very process as his presence is among us. The presence of Jesus and the intimacy of Jesus in the process heightens again the seriousness of sin. Jesus is affirming that where we agree that someone is in sin according to God's word, he does as well. So that person isn't just resisting the church and the authority that has been given to the church. They're resisting God himself. They're resisting Jesus, the king of the church. The idea there where two or three are gathered, there I am as well in your presence, it it brings us back into the process. We're going to look at that in just a moment. But the idea here is... Uh, two or three witnesses were required in an Old Testament context to verify facts. It's a judicial understanding here. Now, I want to correct some of your theology and some of your prayers here because we've all been here, right? All of us have prayed or heard somebody pray, you know, God, where two or three are gathered, we know you're here with us. Here's the problem. When you pray that, you're not disciplining anybody. I hope not. 
You, you, oftentimes we pray that prayer as if, you know, this is what constitutes a church. I had somebody this week tell me, well, that verse constitutes a church. You were two or three are gathered. Jesus is there with us. I mean, listen, Jesus is with you when you're by yourself. Do you believe that? Jesus doesn't mystically appear all of a sudden when two or three people are gathered together. Here's what you need to understand. This is talking, again, about Jesus' agreement. He is present with the leaders making this decision, making this judgment. He is saying, listen, as the king who is the great arbiter over his church and over his kingdom, he is saying, I am with you in this assessment. You've got the witnesses who have established and corroborated the evidence. I stand with you. I am rendering the verdict with you. That's what it's saying. Some of you are going to be terrified to ever quote that verse again. Context is king. This is significant because, listen, the church is the expression of Jesus on earth. We represent Jesus. We've been talking about this a lot in the last few weeks. We reflect Jesus to the world. The church is the vehicle that God has chosen to use to actually reach the world. The church is ineffective where sin is not taken seriously and runs rampant among us. That's the issue at stake here. It is the reputation of Jesus, it is the advancement of the mission, and it is the good of his people. Jesus is serious about sin and the purity of the church. You say, how does a church get to such a bad place? How does an individual, you ever think about this? How, how does an individual person get to such a bad place where grievous sin can be normative in their life, where they can do what this brother in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 was doing or Jezebel in Revelation 20? I think some of those scriptures actually hold the, the answer for us. Did you notice? Maybe can we throw up a Revelation again, 20? 2 verse 20, sorry. Um, the first part. Back up one, one slide. There we go. I want you to just notice the first line, but I have this against you. Just notice this word. I want you to see this word, that you tolerate. This is an indictment, listen, to the church. You hear this? You hear the church's responsibility in this? He is speaking to the church, not just to this woman. You have decided to tolerate this sinful woman. Can I just say it like this? Listen, the church that tolerates sin and the Christian that tolerates sin should not be surprised when they fall into great and grievous sin. And church, let me just exhort you and encourage you in the Lord. If you are willing to tolerate small sins in your life right now this morning, it is only a matter of time before you will tolerate increasing sin in your life. It begins at the root level. It begins by becoming a people. Listen, a pure people only become a pure people when we are not willing to tolerate sin in our lives and in our midst. And this happens by the Spirit of God working in our hearts and growing this desire within us as we anchor ourselves in Him. So let me just ask you really quickly, what sin are you tolerating in your life right now at this very moment? And maybe in the context of community, can I just ask you this? What sin are you choosing to tolerate in the life of somebody else? And you're watching them destroy their life because of your unwillingness to address it. There's so much at stake. And so God says, listen, you need to understand the seriousness of sin. And when you do, you're prepared then to do this. Listen, practice the strategy for dealing with sin. When you get how serious sin is, you can now implement the strategy and the process that God has given to the church. And by the way, there's a willingness and a desire to do so because you get what's at stake. God's glory, his church is good, the individual soul of the person in sin. And so we back up now and let's just look at this process that's given. These are the standards for those who are in Christ's community. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained or you have won your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, I want to make one qualification here. These are addressing the standards and conduct for those who are followers of Christ, for those who are part of the church of Jesus Christ. These are not for those who have, who have not signed up for them. 
But if you're a Christian, let me just say this to you. If you're a Christian, if you're part of the church, you have signed up for this process if you are choosing to live in sin. You've signed up for it. And so have I. If you're not a believer, we're not called to exercise any form of judgment upon you. In fact, 1 Corinthians 5.13 tells us that we are not to judge outsiders, but instead insiders. Peter says it like this, let judgment begin in the household of God. We take seriously sin in here, but listen, if, if you are an unbeliever and you've walked inside of here, we care about your sin too, we just don't deal with it the same way. It's an important distinction to make. If you're outside the church, we want you to know about Jesus. We want you to know that you are a sinner. We want you to know that every one of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We want you to know that there is a God who loves you and wants to save you from your sin. And if you're inside the church, if you've embraced the gospel message, we want you to know that God has saved you from your sin so that you no longer have to walk in your sin. And God wants to use you, but he has to purge you in, in order to do so effectively, to use you well in his house. We who are a part of Christ's family must follow the family code of conduct given to us in his word. So Jesus describes this process that needs to take place in the life of the church. This passage is, again, let me just say it again, it's not just about punishment for sin, but it is in fact the art of restoration from sin. It is a protection. It's a protection for you as an individual who, who may be walking along a path of destruction in your life. It's called to pull you back and put you on the right and good path. It's a protection for the church at whole, uh, as a whole because a little leaven, as Jesus says, leavens the whole lump. Sin, listen, sin in one part will have an impact and an effect in the entire family of God. And it is a protection for God's glory which is to be paramount, which is what we are called to re reflect to the world around us. So this four-step process is four, if you count it in there, four-step process is given. Each step in the process is driven by the individual who is being confronted, by their unwillingness to listen. You'll notice that? I circled that in my Bible. If he listens to you or if he does not listen, you'll notice that comes up four times. Th that phrase reminds us or shows us when we are to be moving on to a more serious level when we're to include more in the mix, when we're to increase the pressure, so to speak, and the weight on that individual with the hope that they eventually break under that weight. So I wanna give you just a real simple and maybe helpful way. Some of you are like, how can I remember these steps and make sure I'm doing it right? Well, I came up with this. You can turn it into a little jingle if you want. Um, it, it rhymes. So here it is, okay? Step one, just one. Step two, bring a few. Step three, more to see. Step four, out the door. Okay? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Worked hard on that. <laughs> it's accurate. <laughs> Believe me. But, but like you see here, there's a process, and I want you to see this. It's an expanding process. Okay? The sin begins by being dealt with at a very specific, particular level. The first step here, just one. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Notice this, between you and him alone. Keep, keep the circle of knowledge small, okay? Why? Why? To protect the individual. To protect their reputation. To give them a chance to deal with the sin. Do you see how, how sweet this is? Like God is loving us in this process. Just go to the individual, and if your brother is specific, specifically if your brother has sinned against you, then you have the obligation to go to them. A lot of people will ask this question, you know, who's responsible to address the sin? The biblical answer is this, the person who's aware of the problem, okay? This passage here tells us that the person, listen, who has been sinned against has a responsibility to go to that person and let them know. But elsewhere in Scripture, I'm thinking Matthew chapter 6 in particular, in the context, again, of the gathered people of God, if you bring a gift of worship to the altar and you know that your brother has something against you, listen, leave your gift, go to him and be reconciled, then come and offer your gift. So, so the answer is, is both, right? If you know about the offense, if you know about the sin, you are now responsible before the Lord to go to that individual and to either expose and to address what has been done to you or to go and deal with what you have done to them. 
Step one, just one. I want you to notice what it doesn't say. If your brother sins against you, email your pastor. Doesn't say that. If your brother sins against you, phone a friend. Doesn't say that. If your brother sins against you, post it cryptically on social media. Or blatantly, I guess. And can you just see that the plan of restoration here is driven by love? It's driven by concern for the other person. And to do it any other way, here's what you need to understand, to do it any other way means that the process is being driven by anger and self-preservation. It means you don't love them, you love you. It means you're willing to make their offense known before others before you're willing to make it known to them, which is in and of itself an offense against them. Now, hopefully, when you go to this person and you bring the offense to their attention or vice versa, hopefully they're willing to listen. Hopefully, when somebody brings an offense to your knowledge, something that you've done to them, hopefully, listen, you're willing to listen. That's what this passage is driving towards. When you do all of this, when you do this entire first step of the process, here's what you need to do. Be careful of the manner in which you do it. Do it in a spirit of gentleness, Galatians 6. Be sensitive to the fact that that individual may actually be uninformed or ignorant to the issue, and they need you to gently help them understand what they've done. Best case scenario, they respond by listening, but if not, I want you to see uh, what happens next. Step two, bring a few. Okay? And again, we, we've talked about this already, but this is the Old Testament context of two or three witnesses that are required. And here, notice what it says in verse 16. You bring two or three along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. There is protection here. Uh, there is a help here. The role of two or three, again, very familiar to the Jewish audience that Jesus was speaking to. The point is to confirm facts and to corroborate the charge that is brought against the individual. It sounds very much like a court of law because that's the way it was designed to be. So that people can just throw out accusations willy-nilly. So that people can tarnish somebody's reputation and ruin their life because they were angry and they were hurt. This protects against those false accusations, but again, it serves to heighten the seriousness of the offense and break down the stubborn resistance of the individual heart. It confirms the charge, but also it confirms that the person was properly confronted and that they actually will not respond to the confrontation. There's a sense in which the two or three come along and they're watching and saying, yep, I agree, everything's done properly. Yep, you're you, the one who's doing the confronting, you're doing it correctly. And you're also now bringing the weight of the two or three into the mix saying, listen, brother or sister, we all see it too. We all see it and we're all calling you to the same thing. Turn from your sin, repent, listen to the word of God, be reconciled to God. This is not intended to be a mob mentality. There's to be no ambushing or secretive interventions. This is again to be done out of love and care. And if they refuse to listen, again, still with the increased pressure and weight bearing down upon them, step three, more to see. In other words, more have to be brought into the mix. And here, the more to see is the entire church. Contrary to what some believe, some people think, well, this is just some people within the church. The context seems very clear to be speaking of the entire body of Christ. The family of God needs to know where a brother or sister is walking in rebellion to God and hurting themselves in the reputation of Christ. That's the idea here. This is so serious to God. God is caring so deeply for his bride, the church, and for individuals who make it up. Verse 17, tell it to the church. This is not a fun part of the process, but it is a necessary part of the process. The idea behind telling it to the church is that, listen, so the church can know, listen, not for the sake of gossip and slander. It's like a family, right? When one member of a family is going astray, you sit down, you have a family meeting. Why? Why? So you can laugh about it? So you can make fun of the individual? So you can talk about how much of an idiot they are? No. So you can stop and pray. So you can weep together. 
so you can mourn the path that they're on, so you can work together and figure out a plan to kind of plead with them and pull them back and point them to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, this is a family effort to go after the sinning brother or sister in Christ because we love them so deeply and we love the Savior so deeply. So the church is mobilized in this pursuit. And if they still don't listen, if the church is pleading, by this point, usually, by the way, that person is is fleeing the church. They're running from it. They're resisting any kind of confrontation. They're not wanting to talk to anybody. They want to have small talk, but they want to talk about the, the issue at stake. But the church is called to plead with that individual when they see them, to plead for the repentance, to plead for the reconciliation. And if they still don't listen, as the church is calling them to be faithful to the the Lord Jesus Christ, then step four is necessary. They get put out the doors of the church. They get told, listen, until, until you turn from your sin and repent, you are not welcome to experience the blessing of being in the assembling of the family of God. It's a consequence that is good for you. If you want your sin, you go pursue your sin, and we'll trust and pray that God will break you of your sin. And in that process, the church continues to treat them, listen, not like a brother, in the sense of not welcoming them into their home, um, not enjoying kind of conversation with that person, but the goal is this, when I see you in the street, when I see you in the grocery store, when I see you, wherever you are, listen, my sole objective is to say, brother or sister, have you turned from your sin yet? Can we talk about the issue at stake? Can we talk about where you're at with the Lord? A continued appeal until they repent. In fact, listen to what 1 Corinthians 5, to be on the screen behind me, says this. Paul says this, again, about that same situation. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. You say, you say what kind of people get put out of the church and, and, and we're not supposed to associate with them if they're, they're called brothers or sisters? Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. There it is, unbelievers, not the same thing or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since they would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. It's a Christian. If he or she is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a viler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one, do you see the weight placed upon this individual? And again, it's not that they've just sinned and messed up. It's their unwillingness to repent. They don't care. They're like, I'm going to keep living in this sin. I don't care what you say to me. I love my sin. I'm going to keep pursuing it. And I want to claim the name of Jesus Christ at the same time. And the church says, no, that's not the way this works. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. You Say, Ian, this sounds really harsh. Listen, your problem is not with my words. It's with the word of God then. We are called to be a pure people, and lastly, that leads us to this place where we embrace the Savior's love in rescuing us from sin. Again, we've tried to couch this entire section with an understanding of love and rescuing the individual. But I want you to see this. This text, this short little text known as the church discipline text, is bracketed, it's sandwiched between two powerful parables. And both of them are critical to understanding why this process is necessary. One of the parables tells us what we do if the sinning brother or sister repents. The other tells us why we do this in the first place. Let us deal with the first part of that. What do we do if somebody repents of the sin? What do we do if they listen to us when we confront them? Peter, in verse 21 He has this question. Again, Peter, he's never afraid to ask questions. I love that about Peter. He comes to Jesus after Jesus gives him this serious, serious process for dealing with sin. He says, then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Take it easy, Peter. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, there's a lot of context there to get into, but I just want to draw out a few quick thoughts. Listen, Peter says, really, what if they keep sinning? What if they keep hurting me? At what point do I say, enough's enough, I will not forgive you anymore. You seek forgiveness from me, too bad, too late, so sorry. The response of Jesus is, 
you always, always, always extend forgiveness and grace. There's never a point where it's okay to say, I will not forgive you if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Never, never. Be like, forgiveness is hard, Ian. You don't know what this person did to me. You know how many times they've offended me in the same way. You never, never have the right, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, to refuse forgiveness. Listen, sometimes our motivation in confronting, you say, why, why does Peter even have to ask this question? Wouldn't this be, I mean, just, just so simple for him to understand? Like, why would he have to ask, why do I have to keep forgiving? Listen, here's why. Because sometimes our motivation in confronting sin is not a genuine desire to see them restored, but to instead exact vengeance. Our sinful hearts love to punish people for their sin against us, don't they? And here he gives this really sweet parable of a, 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 what's called the parable of the unforgiving servant. And in this parable, there is this servant who owes this massive debt to a king, an, an insurmountable debt to pay. He has no potential to pay it for the rest of his life. He owes this, he owes, he's just a ridiculous amount he owes. And he pleads for mercy from the king. And the king graciously extends mercy. And then this unrepentant, or excuse me, this servant who has been extended this mercy, he turns around, he walks out of the king's presence, and he goes and he pursues one of his servants, and he tries to exact from his servant a very small amount of money that's owed to him, and the servant pleads for mercy, the same kind of mercy that he pled for, and instead, this unthankful servant turns around and punishes this man, throws him in prison. Word get back, gets back to the king who had pardoned this man in the first place. And in verse 32, it says this, Then his master summoned him and he said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not have you had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Listen, the reason we forgive much is because we have been forgiven much. Amen, church? Our insurmountable debt has been paid in full by the king. He has rescued us from our sin. When we could not pay off that debt, we pled for mercy and he graciously granted it. And for some of you, listen, some of you, you've walked in here, you're an outsider of the church, you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, and the message you need to hear today is this, you have an insurmountable debt that you cannot pay off. But if you come to the God who created you and you plead for mercy upon the basis of his work on the cross, if you believe that God, listen, he wiped the debt clean by sending his son to make full payment for you. His son paid the debt that you owed. He bled it and died for you. He rose victorious from the grave, demonstrating that the price was indeed accepted by God. If you believe in Jesus, if you plead for mercy on the basis of Jesus, you can be set free from the prison of sin this very moment. You can have that mercy. When you see the magnitude of your debt and the one to whom that debt is owed, you only have one potential option for salvation. Plead for mercy. And church, listen, if you're a Christian, if you have received that mercy, you have no right to withhold that mercy to others. The second parable reminds us why we would do this you know, this is hard. This, uh, this process is hard. Some of you are like, I don't like confrontation, Ian. I'm, I'm, I'm an introvert. Too bad. <laughs> I don't like confronting people. I'll leave that uh, uh, to other people. This is not up for you to say. Well, what if they don't respond well? That's not on you. Listen, there are a thousand good reasons not to do this process of, of discipline and restoration, but there is one supreme reason to do this. Love. And this kind of love, love that seeks to see them restored to the body of Christ, listen, the kind of love that longs for them to be rescued from the consequences of their sin and rebellion, the kind of love that goes to the most extreme lengths to protect and to save is the kind of love that God shows us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, this entire call to pursue each other and rescue one another from sin and its damaging effects is based upon this 
short but profoundly beautiful parable that he gives right before the church discipline process, the parable of the lost sheep. Just listen to this. This sets up the entire thing. Here's what Jesus says. See that you do not, do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven there are angels. Always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one that went astray? And if he finds it, Truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Do you see the heart of God for his sheep? This is the story of all the redeemed. Jesus sought you and he found you. Jesus saw you in your sin and he went running after you. And in the family of God, if you are one of his children, listen, when you go astray, it is the heart of Jesus to chase you down, to track you down, to go to the ends of the earth, to the most extreme place to pull you back into the fold. This is the love of the father for his children. And when he sees the prodigal son broken and repentant and groveling and crawling home, he doesn't stand there with his arms crossed going, see, I told you. He runs out the door. He drapes his robe around you, puts the signet ring on your finger, and he throws a feast in honor of you. The love of God for his children. And you see, listen, church, listen, that is the picture of the gospel that we display in this process of going after one another in sin. Because it was God, listen, who brought our sin to our attention in the first place. It was God who exposed the wickedness and rebellion of our hearts. It was God who showed us that we could have forgiveness and grace in Christ Jesus. It was God who showed us that we could be reconciled to him. And that's what we scream to the world. So we scream to the world when we take sin seriously here, when we go after one another, when we pull people back in and we allow the Spirit of God to set their feet back upon the rock. This is the story of all the redeemed and so it is to be the practice of all the redeemed. We do this, church. Listen, just, we do this because this is what God has done for us already. We are representing and reflecting God here in the body and how we lovingly rescue each other from the danger of sin because we have embraced the Savior's love in rescuing us from sin. He has made us a pure people and he is calling us to be a pure people. We must take sin seriously. We must deal with it strategically. And we must embrace the Savior's love and rescue us from sin if this is going to be a possible in our church family.